0: Good morning. So, today we wrap up our series in the book of Ezekiel, and I want to start by applauding you all for being the first church in America to make it through a series in the book of Ezekiel. (laughs) I'm very impressed. You guys have hung with this and done a great job, and it's been a really fun go together, I think. So, we wrap it up today. I thought it'd be, it'd be good before I read the passage to take us all the way back to the first weekend in January, to chapter one of Ezekiel, to the first conversation we started. And what I said there was why we chose this series is because I wanted to help us all recapture our vision for this God who is wild, who is big, who is awesome, who is, as I said, awe-full, meaning he fills us with awe. And of course, the reason I want to do this is because I think the church, not necessarily our specific church, but the church in America in general is in danger of losing that vision of the, the awesome wildness of our God. I'd read an article called Yawning at Tigers. And you can picture this person just kind of getting bored with these creatures that are really awesome and majestic. I, wanna, I read this quote in the first week. I want to read it to you again. Before we can yawn at God, we must first replace the majestic, holy, awesome tiger of scripture with a domesticated kitten, conformed to the standards of the world, measured by the yardstick of political correctness. Who wants a God who roars, who threatens, who judges? Why not rather fashion a God in our own taste, a friendly God we can pet and leash and export for popular appeal? And I thought that, you know, that, that is a lot of what is happening in our culture today. That, that we're beginning to create God in our own image in a way that fits with our own sensibilities. And the problem is we're getting bored with the God we've created. <laughs> and so my hope is that in this series on Ezekiel, your vision has been rekindled for the wildness, the beauty, the awesomeness of our God. And we've seen. Uh, his wildness. We've seen his wildness in judgment in this book. And there's some hard passages about judgment. And we've seen his wildness in, in the mercy and redemption and hope and restoration that he offers. We've seen that especially in the last month or so. So I hope that's happened for you. And today we get the final vision of Ezekiel, which is actually chapters 40 to 48. So nine, this nine-chapter vision that we're not going to read all of. But we get one last beautiful vision from the book of Ezekiel. It's a vision of hope and restoration. Ultimately, I believe it is a vision of eternal life. So, what I'm gonna do is, I'm gonna read just excerpts of these chapters to you, and you're not gonna be able to follow along with me. So, what I would invite you to do, if it's helpful, is to close your eyes. And try to imagine the scene that you're going to hear. or are several scenes, actually. If that's not helpful, you can keep your eyes open. I'm not particularly attractive. I think the vision is much more attractive. So I would close your eyes if I were you. But it is up to you. All right. So one last time, Ezekiel receiving, receiving a vision from the Lord. In the 25th year of our exile, at the beginning of the year, the hand of the Lord was upon me. In visions of God, he took me to the land of Israel and set me on a very high mountain. He took me there, and I saw a man whose appearance was like bronze. He was standing in the gateway with a linen cord and a measuring rod in his hand. The man said to me, son of man, look with your eyes and pay attention to everything I'm going to show you, for that is why you have been brought here. Tell the house of Israel everything you see. I saw a wall completely surrounding the temple area, and there in the middle was the temple of God. The man brought me to the gate facing east, and I saw the glory of the Lord coming from the east. His voice was like the roar of rushing waters, and the land was radiant with his glory. The vision I saw was like the vision I had seen by the Kabar River, and I fell flat on my face. The glory of the Lord entered the temple through the gate facing east, and the glory of the Lord filled the temple. Then I heard a voice from inside the temple saying, Son of man, this is the place of my throne and the place for the soles of my feet. This is where I will live among the Israelites forever. Then the man brought me back to the entrance of the temple, and I saw water coming out from under the threshold of the temple. The water was coming down from under the south side of the temple, and it was flowing east. As the man went eastward with a measuring line in his hand, he measured off a third of a mile and then led me through the water. It was ankle deep. He measured off another third of a mile and led me through water that was knee deep. He measured off another third and led me through water that was up to the waist. And he measured off yet another third, but now it was a river that I could not cross because the water had risen and was deep enough to swim in, a river that no one could cross. He asked me, son of man, do you see this? Then he led me back to the bank of the river. When I arrived there, I saw a great number of trees on each side of the river. He said to me, this water flows toward the eastern region where it enters the Dead Sea. When it empties into the Dead Sea, the water there becomes fresh. Swarms of living creatures will live wherever the river flows. There will be large numbers of fish because this water flows there and makes the salt water fresh. So wherever the river flows, everything will live. Fishermen will stand along the shore and there will be places for spreading nets. The fish will be of many kinds like the fish of the Mediterranean Sea. And fruit trees of all kinds will grow on both banks of the river. Their leaves will not wither, nor will their fruit fail. Every month they will bear, because the water from the temple flows to them. Their fruit will serve for food, and their leaves will serve for healing. This is the word of the Lord. Amen. So this book ends with this... This beautiful vision of hope for Israel's future. And I just want to remind you that hope is what they needed most. Okay? 25 years now, they've been living in exile. And the devastation of having been conquered by the Babylonians, been carted off living in these slave encampments in a foreign land, powerless, hopeless, and they desperately needed hope. They needed to stop looking back. At what had happened. They needed to turn to the future and see a future that had hope. And so God gives Ezekiel this beautiful vision that is intended to bring great hope. Before we walk through some of the details, I just want to acknowledge there's an interpretive issue to these nine chapters. Okay. These nine chapters are, are very concrete and specific in terms of their descriptions. You have a temple and the temple and all of its, its area and dimensions are mentioned. You have a redistribution of the land of the 12 tribes and very specific uh, ordering of the land and the temple. And it's also very Jewish. So it's very specific and very Jewish. And what happened was this vision was partially fulfilled about 50 years after this vision. God had promised to bring them back into the land to restore the temple, and that did happen. Israel came back into the land. A temple was rebuilt so that when Jesus shows up 500 years later, there is a temple. So in some ways, this vision was partially bef- fulfilled, but nobody would, would argue that it was fully Fulfilled. The scope and the beauty and the wonder here was, absolutely came short in terms of history. And so the interpretive question is, what do we do with the unfulfilled parts of this vision? And there's a couple views. Uh, one view is this, is to read this more literally and to say, since we haven't seen this fulfillment yet, this waits to be fulfilled in a more literal way for the nation of Israel, okay? So in the future, God will bring about the fullness of everything that's talked about in the details here. God will bring Israel back into the land exactly as it's described here someday in the future. The temple will be rebuilt according to the dimensions. Sacrifices will be offered possibly in a millennial kingdom. There's different versions of that, but a literal Jewish fulfillment in the future, okay? That's one view. The other view says this is more of a, a figurative description of figurative vision of the future that will be for all of God's people, Jew and Gentile, that ultimately this waits to be fulfilled in the new heavens and the new earth, what we see at the last chapters of of Revelation. But it will be an international vision for all people. And so we're getting these very Jewish images that are meant to convey certain things about what eternity ultimately will be like, okay? That's the view that I lean towards. So that's where I'll be speaking out of today, but I just want to acknowledge that there's great disagreement about that. Uh, Wherever you land on that, what is clear is that this is a vision of the future that is intended to give great hope to God's people. And so I just want to talk and end this series by talking about hope and by reminding us that as Christians, we are to be these deeply hopeful People that those around us ought to experience us as very hopeful people, and we are hopeful because no matter what we 're going through, and i 'm very aware even in the opening of worship i 'm aware of many of the things that some of you are going through, some of you are going through some really hard times right now, but but whatever we 're going through, we know where the story is headed, we know where the story ends, and so we can walk through things with this hopeful future that one day. All manner of things shall be made well. That God will restore all things. And we will truly end living happily ever after. And I was thinking about how often do we, do we fix our, our minds on that future of eternity? How much does that inform our days? And I was thinking of a, of a, a statement that's been out there for a long time. Have you heard this statement before? Uh, that person is so heavenly minded that they are no earthly good. Right? We've all heard that, Right? That, is, that person's thinking about heaven so much that they're, they've lost you know, the, the nitty-gritty of the, the day. They've kind of just escaped into this form of thinking about another world, but they're, they're not thinking about the here and now. And I suppose it's possible for someone to be that. I have never met somebody <laughs> like this. In all my years of Christianity, I've never met a person who, when I talked to them, their vision of heaven is so compelling and so interesting and so beautiful that they're constantly thinking of that, and they're leaving behind their day-to-day responsibilities. For any one Christian that I could come up with, that, that I could give you a thousand people who are too earthly-minded, <laughs> that they're not at all thinking about heaven, that when you ask them about eternity, their picture of what that is ends up being fairly boring and dull and uninterested, and, and unimaginative. It, and that vision has almost nothing to do with how they live their day-to-day lives. At least that's my experience of myself and most of you, if I could say it so boldly. Uh, C.S. Lewis says it this way. I love this. is C.S. Lewis. A continual looking forward to the eternal world is not, as some modern people think, a form of escapism or wishful thinking but it's actually one of the things a Christian is meant to do. If you read history, you will find that the Christians who did most for the present world were precisely those who thought most of the next. Think of the, the disciples. All these people, their, their hope of the future compelled them to live these lives of, of beauty and joy. I just think of what Sean was just sharing. You know, This picture of providing food for kids. A vision of what, what God will one day do can compel us to a very practical life of living in that hope. Couldn't help but think of um, Hebrews 11. All these men and women of faith who lived for that future city. All these people were still living by faith when they died. They, they hadn't yet received the things promised. They only saw them and welcomed them from a distance. And they admitted that they were aliens and strangers on earth. People who say such things show that they are looking for a country of their own. If they had been thinking of the country they had left, they would have had opportunity to return. But instead, they were longing for a better country, a heavenly one. Therefore, God is not ashamed to be called their God, for he has prepared a city for them. So we are called to be men and women whose vision of eternity absolutely impacts how we live our lives today. No matter what we're going through. And so I want to leave us with this vision of the future, and I, especially those of you for whom life is, is heavy right now and it's hard. I, my prayer is that this isn't going to solve your problems today, but my prayer is that it would fill you with hope and encouragement no matter what you're going through. So two images that I want to focus on in these final nine chapters that I just read to you. The first is this image of the glory of the Lord returning to his temple. That's in chapter 43. And the second image is the image of this river of God flowing out of the temple and giving life, blessing everywhere it flows. That's in chapter 47. So let's look at chapter 43. The glory of the Lord returning to the temple. You've got it open there, hopefully. So this man who serves as uh, Ezekiel's tour guide in this vision, he uh, brings him to the east gate. And in verse 2, he sees the glory of the Lord Coming from the east, and in verse three, he tells us this is the same vision I saw of God by the Kabar River. All right, so this goes all the way back to our, our week one. Do you, can you remember the vision of God that Ezekiel had there? Remember, he he's he's praying by this probably a canal, and and all of a sudden he sees this windstorm coming, and then there's these these four wild winged creatures they're cherubs and we mentioned they don't look quite like the renaissance paintings of the fat pudgy little babies right but there's these these wild angelic creatures and they are holding this throne of sapphire and then on the throne is seated the lord and and his his upper body is like this like it looks like glowing metal and there's His he's radiance. The radiance was like a a rainbow all around him, and there's lightning and fire, and just this amazing vision. And and when Ezekiel first saw it, he his response is to fall on his face to bow his head before the awesome, awful glory of God. So this vision is now twenty years later. They date it for us. It's only been three months for us. Okay, twenty years. It's been 20 years of exile, of heartache, of being misunderstood by his own people, and yet he sees again the vision of the glory of God, and his response is the same as it once was 20 years ago it is to fall down on his face and worship. Okay, the glory of of the Lord never gets old, (laughs) it never gets tiring, and so. You have the glorious presence of God coming from these. And of course, the presence of God, the glorious presence, that's what distinguished Israel from all the other nations, right? That's what made them distinctive was the fact that God dwelt among them in the temple in Jerusalem. That's what gave them their sense of significance in the world. That's what certainly gave them the sense of security. And and because of that's what what made chapters eight and eleven so devastating, where Ezekiel was seeing a vision of Jerusalem, and you remember what happened? He saw the glory of the Lord, and in in the course of like three chapters, it slowly started to depart from the temple and moved off to the east. After hundreds and hundreds of years of, of blatant disobedience of Israel, God's glory finally left his own temple and moved off to the east. That is the emotional low point of the book of Ezekiel. And shortly thereafter, Babylon came in, destroyed Jerusalem, destroyed the temple. But now what we see is the glory of God, the glorious presence of God returning from the east. Verse 4, the glory of the Lord entered the temple through the gate facing east. Then the Spirit lifted me up and brought me into the inner court. And here's the climax of the the scene. And the glory of the Lord filled the temple. The king has come home again to his temple, to his people, his glorious presence once again dwelling with them. And then these wonderful words in verse 6 from the one in the temple, God himself, son of man, this is the place of my throne and the place for the soles of my feet. This is where I will live among the Israelites forever. It's a beautiful vision. Now, whatever your interpretation of this scene, what we can all agree on is that this is ultimately the ultimate promise of eternal life. The, the ultimate promise of eternal life is the glorious presence of God finally coming down to dwell with his people in a transformed creation. And that's what we are all looking forward to. I want you to hear the echoes of this scene in the book of Revelation. These are the final two chapters of the Bible. This is, of course, John, the apostle John, who sees this vision. Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth, but here are the echoes of the presence And the glory of God. For the first heaven and the first earth had passed away, and there was no longer any sea. I saw the holy city, the new Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride, beautifully dressed for her husband. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Now the dwelling of God is with men, and he will live with them. They will be his people, and God himself will be with them and be their God. He will wipe every tear from their eyes. And John says, I did not see a temple in the city because the Lord God Almighty and the Lamb are its temple. So a little change, a progression from Ezekiel where there is a temple. He's saying, actually, the whole place is basically a temple now. The Lamb, of course, is Jesus Christ. The city does not need the sun or the moon to shine on it, for the glory of God gives it light. And the Lamb, Jesus, is its lamp. This is the ultimate promise of eternal life for us. One day we will experience The glory of God as he comes to dwell finally and forever with his people. And so I want to talk about glory for just a second. God's glory. So many ways to talk about this. What I want to say today, his his glory is the the outward manifestation of his inner perfection. And let me say that again. It it is the the outward manifestation manifestation of his inner perfection. God, who he is, he is perfect. He is pure. He is holy. There is nothing. Oh gosh, you weren't supposed to see that yet. Um, in himself, he is 100% perfection. And his, his glory is, is the, the, ex, the outward expression of that, that we can actually see and experience as creatures. So I, I think of like the analogy of a diamond. Okay, think about like a, a perfectly cut, pure diamond. It, is, it has perfect integrity in its structure. It's, it's completely symmetrical. There's not any trace of any other thing, all right? In itself, it is perfection. And because of that, when light's cast on it, it that perfection radiates in all this color and light. It, 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 and that's what God's holiness is. It's the radiance of his purity, Okay? the ratings of those periods, and whatever else eternity is going to be, whatever you picture you know, eternal life looking like, it will first and foremost be an experience of God himself in all his glory. And what you need to know about the glory of God, if you don't know anything else, what you need to know about it is this, that you were made for the glory of God. That when God made you, He made you to experience, to encounter, to celebrate his glory. Your heart was created, was designed for God's glory. When you encounter it, whatever it will look like, I promise you, you will say, this is what I was made for. This is what I was made for. And I was thinking of, of experiences we have, even in, in our lives here, in this fallen, broken world, we all have these experiences of, of, of going through something where you're like, I was made for this. You, you know, like for some of us, um, for some of us, it's a sport. There's a sport that when we were a kid, we connected like, I was made to play basketball or whatever it was. Uh, for some of us, it was, it was literature. We, all of a sudden, we discovered great literature, and, and we were made for that. For some of us, it was a job that we, that we sort of, I, I was made to do this. Some of us, it was, it was a musical instrument, and we picked it up, and we're like, yes. For some of us, it was a, a person <laughs> that we met, and it was the sense of like, we were made for each other. We've all had experiences here where, where we encounter something. It could be a place out in creation. And, and we realized there, there was a part of my soul I didn't even know existed that this taps into. This, this goes so deep and fulfills these deep desires and longings that I have. We all have had glimpses of that in this life, in this fallen, broken world. And the glory of God <laughs> is like that times a thousand. When we encounter it, we'll say, this is the answer to all of my deepest longings, to all of the questions of my heart, Lord, you yourself are the answer to this. And as I, When I think about what it'll be like, I think coming to see God's glory will be like two things all at once. I think it will be, in, on the one hand, this experience of feeling like we're finally coming home. Like it'll be, man, this, this world was a strange world. I finally come home. I've, this is where I belong. This is where I always belong. And it will be the the security and comfort of finally coming home. And yet it'll also be this wildly beautiful and awesome thing that will feel like this great adventure that would never get boring or dull. And so I think encountering God will be this great combination of of security, but also adventure and excitement and wonder all wrapped up together in who our God is. I love the quote that you've already read now from St. Augustine. Because the face of God is so lovely and so beautiful, once you've seen it, nothing else can give you pleasure. It will give you insatiable satisfaction of which we will never tire. We shall always be hungry and always have our fill. (laughs) I love that. These deep desires that he himself has created that only he can fulfill. And we'll begin to experience the fulfillment of that. But it will always be this ever new adventure with the Lord. And there's one other thing I want to mention about his glory that I I love about this. It's this. He shares his glory. (laughs) He doesn't just keep it to himself in eternity, but he shares it. I love the picture. Look at verse uh, verse 2. The second half of verse 2 says, His voice was like the roar of rushing waters. And it says, And the land was radiant with his glory. It's like his glory is shining on the land, and the whole place is lit up with his glory. We read Revelation 21 where it says, There won't be a need for the sun because God's glory will shine over the whole place. And so, God, he not only is glorious, but he, he will glorify everything. The whole creation will be infused with his glory, and we will be these creatures that ourselves will be glorious. And we'll see God, and we'll look at each other and we'll go, Oh my gosh, you're glorious! You're radiating with the glory of the Lord. And so his glory is something that he shares. And, and eternal life will be an experience of the glorious presence of God. And that is our ultimate hope. God himself in all his glory. Paul says it perfectly. We rejoice in the hope of the glory of God. We rejoice in the hope of the glory of God. We will One day see his face and realize that we have come home to all of our deepest longings, our deepest desires forever. Amen. Amen. Beautiful picture. The glory of the Lord finally coming to dwell with his people. Well, if that isn't enough for you, let's look at the final image that I want to leave us with in chapter 47. There's more than just his presence. There is his blessing, his abundant blessing. And I want to look at this river flowing from the temple. Could you kind of picture it as I was was reading it? Uh, In verse 1, Ezekiel notices there's just this little trickle flowing. It's flowing out of the holy of holies, the inner part of the temple. It's obviously flowing from the very presence of God. God is the source of this water. And then in verse 3, he follows this guy who starts measuring off, you know, a third of a mile. Those are modern measurements I made up, okay? Um, um, they used the metric system back then, so I know it wasn't miles. Um, but uh, a third of a mile he walks, and, and he walks into the river, and it's up to his ankles. Farther down he walks in, it's up to his knees, up to his waist. Finally, he's swimming in it. Now, any of you who have been to Jerusalem, um, particularly on a hot, dry day, uh, Craig Hill just returned from Jerusalem, so he can tell you. Now, it's springtime. It may not have been too hot, but it gets pretty hot in the south. Um, but if you've been there, you can imagine what a refreshing experience this would have been for Ezekiel to, to be able to walk in this cool, refreshing river and then eventually actually start swimming in this water, this refreshing, cool water. And then to notice that he's actually out now in the middle of a river <laughs> that no one can cross. Pretty amazing, and so in verse six, he actually has to swim back to the uh, to the banks of the river, and and when he does, he notices that the river is producing all of this life. There's all these trees uh, growing up uh, because they're receiving water from this river, and then he hears this voice tell him, "This river flows eastward into the Dead Sea." Okay, the Dead Sea is about 20 miles or so east of. Jerusalem and it flows down and you have to go really far down to get into the Dead Sea. And it says when it flows there, it turns that salty lake into fresh water so that that lake becomes full of life. Now let me just show you a picture of the Dead Sea. Um, Here's a, Oh no, that's a sunset. Gosh, I'm really blown it today. I had a great image of a sunset, but forget about it. Um, uh, here's a, you can see a, a, this is a you know, modern picture road along the Dead Sea. Okay, the Dead Sea is the point of lowest elevation in the entire earth. I don't know if you knew that. It's about 1,400 feet below sea level. And uh, it's an enclosed lake. And so the water can't escape. So, of course, what happens is you have rivers funnel into it. And then just it's hot down there. It's real hot and dry. And so the water starts to evaporate. And water's gone. And what's left is all this salt. And minerals, Um, here's the edge uh, of the lake. You see all the salt collecting. Um, uh, Really good for floating, really bad for surviving in, okay? No life survives in the Dead Sea. But the river of God flows from the temple and takes this lifeless place and really turns it into an oasis. It's like, you know, it's like the Garden of Eden. You have this description of all all these fish, uh, living as, as many as the Mediterranean Sea, all these, this variety of fish that people can catch and eat, of course. And then he sees on the side, he sees these fruit trees, verse 12, of all sorts of kinds of fruit. And they're magical trees, if you really think about them. Um, they bear fruit every month, and, uh, which is great. Ours don't do that in my backyard. Um, but they're bearing fruit every month, and their food is for, he, uh, for eating. And then it says their leaves... Are for, they have these healing properties in them. All because of the river that flows from the temple of God. And so, if if the first image is, I think, about the glorious presence of God, I think this second image of the river is essentially about the life giving blessing of God. (laughs) The abundant, refreshing blessing of God that brings life and healing and joy. For the people and for the land. The abundant generosity of our God. Bringing blessing to his people and to his land for all eternity. And I was thinking about this. It's an interesting way to end the book. It's actually not what I would have expected Ezekiel to see. Here's what I would have expected. I would have expected the glory of God to fill the temple... And then I would have expected to see the people come around the temple and worship the Lord so that finally God would be receiving the praise and the worship that he deserved. And that would make a lot of sense, especially because of all the idolatry that we saw in his ego, that they weren't worshiping God. He wasn't getting what he deserved. And so I would have expected this to end with God finally receiving what is his right and due. And instead the book ends not with God receiving, it ends with him receiving giving, him endlessly pouring out on his people and on his land, life-giving blessing. This beautiful picture of the generosity of our God. Let me show you the echoes of this in Revelation. This is the final chapter of Revelation. Then the angel showed me the river of the water of life, as clear as crystal flowing from the throne of God and of the Lamb down the middle of the great street of the city on each side of the river stood the tree of life bearing 12 crops of fruit yielding its fruit every month clear echoes of ezekiel although now we're told that this tree is the tree of life that tree that was with adam and eve in the garden of eden not the tree of the knowledge of good and evil that they ate, but the one that they should have kept eating with to have eternal life forever that tree is the tree we're talking about and the leaves of the tree are for the healing of the nations Now notice, John is internationalizing Ezekiel's Jewish vision. This is a a healing tree, not just for Israel, but for the nations. No longer will there be any curse. The curse of Eden, of Adam and Eve's sin, will be lifted. This beautiful, glorious new creation will come. And the blessing of God, the life-giving blessing of God, will flow to his creatures and to his land for all eternity. And I want you just to picture for a second what it might be like (laughs) to experience the uninhibited blessing of the Creator God, who has every resource in the universe available to him to give as a source of blessing to his people. And I want you just to think about the glimpses of God's blessing that we receive in this life so many great blessings. That we receive. I was thinking of uh, the Psalm, Psalm sixteen, eleven, where the Psalmist says, "You make known to me the path of life. You will fill me with joy in your presence." And this is the phrase: "With eternal pleasures at your right hand." And I was thinking this week, just all the all the pleasures that we get to experience in this world today, all all the blessings. And I was just listing them off. I was thinking of the, the the blessings. Last night, I had a great salmon meal with my family, my wife and kids. So good. But good food is such a pleasure, isn't it? Good wine is such a pleasure. I was thinking of the the beauty of creation. What a blessing it is to live where we live and to experience creation the way we do. The blessing of music. The pleasure of sex. God invented sex. He created it, right? Let's not forget that. The blessing of friendship, of community. So many blessings that we experience all the time. And this is a world that's cursed. It's fallen. It's broken. And yet there's still such pleasure and blessing to be had here. Just imagine what it might be like (laughs) when all of our fallenness and the fallenness of the world is removed. And we get to experience the uninhibited, endless blessing of a God who can bless the socks off of his children. Every moment. Never ending. Always new. Always refreshing. refreshing. And a blessing not just for us humans, but a blessing for all of creation, as these pictures give us. So there's our vision that I want to leave us with, this vision of eternity, of enjoying the glorious presence of God and enjoying the life of God, giving blessing that he will pour out on us for all eternity. Amen. 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 So there is the book of Ezekiel. You may never see it again, but you got it here. So let's be people of hope. Whatever you're going through, let us live with hope in this vision. Let people experience us as real, as authentic, not as trying to sugarcoat things, but no matter what, that we can always be people of hope. I'll leave you with the words of Paul from Second Corinthians. Therefore, we do not lose heart. Though outwardly we're wasting away, yet inwardly we are being renewed day by day. For these light and momentary troubles are achieving for us an eternal glory. That far outweighs them all. So we fix our eyes not on what is seen, but on what is unseen. For what is seen is temporary, but what is unseen is eternal. Let's pray. Father, we cannot wait for your glorious presence and your unending blessing. To come down and be poured out on us for all eternity. And we are grateful for the glimpses of that we are to get. The glimpses of your presence with us through your Holy Spirit. The glimpses of all these wonderful blessings that we receive in this life. But help us today to never forget that this is ultimately not the city of our deepest citizenship. But that that is a heavenly city that awaits us. I pray today that your Holy Spirit would fill your people with hope. I pray especially for those who are going through really challenging things, who are carrying burdens that are heavy, who maybe feel alone in those burdens. I pray that you would come alongside them and encourage them and fill them with your hope. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.